Church, as we continue this morning uh, into the deeper sections of Acts chapter 17, we get to one of the most famous sermons in all of the Scriptures. Uh, To me, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, is the Sermon on the Mount starting in Matthew 5, running through Matthew 8. About halfway through that chapter, uh, Peter's discourse in Acts chapter 2, as he literally lays out in verses 43 through 47, the nutshell of our belief structure, I think is another one of those sermons that is just world famous. But this one is probably mentioned as many, uh, as much as any other, including Sermon on the Mountain. This is the address of Paul at Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus, Ares Hill. We're going to explain how all that's the same place, same message, same place, just three different names. But what I want to talk through today is, is this idea of being able to explain exactly what we need to do when our time of explaining comes. And it made me think of one of my favorite shows. Uh, This one, you may remember, those of you who are old throwback, classic TV kind of people, I Love Lucy was one of my favorites because Lucy was constantly getting into mischief. Now, sometimes she didn't really mean to. Lucy was just one of those personalities that just kind of fell into mischief or it followed her around everywhere. And a lot of times, if you can't tell, as Ricky is holding money in his left hand, a lot of times it involved her shopping practices. Everybody remember that Lucy loved to go by. And sometimes Ricky would get a little bit heated. His, his anger was sometimes here in the show. And, and his favorite line, my favorite line, because it was when it's about to get funny, was when Ricky would come into the room and he would say, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. Well, we're going to find the Apostle Paul today uh, with some folks circling about him at the Areopagus going, Paul, you've got some explaining to do. And some explaining he does. And it's in his explaining I want to ask you this question. If somebody were to put you on trial and it is stressful beyond belief, would you be able to explain in a nutshell, in a a short discourse, exactly what it is that you believe? And you would say, well, Justin, how can I? In case you have forgotten, there are 66 books in this thing that we call the Bible. How would I summarize that? Well, Well, that's where we're going today. I'm going to challenge you to be able to summarize this, and whether it's to your kids or your grandkids or your coworker or the person who knocks on your door on Saturday morning wanting to challenge your beliefs, I want you to be able to explain in a very short period of time, in a very concise manner, what it is we actually believe, what it is we actually hold true, and why that is important. Because church, what we learn from Paul today is this simple idea that we need to be able to explain what it is we believe. And I'm going to share with you as we get deeper into the message, one of the greatest theologians I ever learned from was my maternal grandmother. And she dropped out of school in about the eighth grade. No seminary background. She didn't speak any language other than English, and it was country. But buddy, she could tell you stories about the Scriptures. We need to be able to explain in a culture that is quickly moving farther and farther and farther away from our biblical foundation and our roots, we need to be able to understand what it is that we actually stand for. And so as we go through this text today, that's what I hope you can answer. You you ask yourself this question, could I be like Paul? Not an apostle, we know that office is closed, but could I be like Paul and stand up under duress or under pressure, or could I sit with my grandchild and explain to them exactly what I am? And here's why I am that, because this is what I believe. So pray with me and let's study today. Father, we love you, we thank you for how you're going to challenge us in this word. For Father, none of us in this room are the apostle Paul, nor do we want to be. We don't aspire to be an apostle, but we do aspire to do something this apostle did. And Father, that's to be so educated 
and Lord, maybe not even formally, but to be so educated in our Scriptures, in our beliefs, that whenever asked, we could provide an explanation in such a way that people would understand. For Father, if I can explain it, but people don't understand it, it's useless information. Lord, we, be able, we need to be able to understand it in such a way I can communicate it to the simplest of ears. And so, Lord, today we, we ask for this gift of wisdom, your wisdom, that you would impart to us so that, so that we don't overlook the historical content of what's here. Father, this is one of the greatest sermons in all the Scriptures. And yet, Father, at the same time, Father, give us wisdom to understand how we can apply this same truth. That, that Lord, I may not stand up somewhere in Athens and look up, Father, from the Areopagus to the Acropolis. I may not ever do that. But Lord, may I be like Paul in knowing how to be able to explain the foundational beliefs that define who I am. That's what we ask for today. Give us that wisdom and we will praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So church, study with me this morning. Again, we'll be in chapter 17, and my, my Christian standard translation says, Paul in Athens, there's a little heading that's there. Please understand that wasn't in the Greek. This just helps us out in the English. So look at verse 16 with me, if you would. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Let me show you where Paul was waiting and why. If you remember, we started over here in Syria. Here's Antioch. We're in our second missionary journey. We go to Tarsus, Derby, Lystra all the way through Antioch, Pisidia, to Troas, and we just keep going. We're beaten and imprisoned uh, in Philippi. We've made it down to Thessalonica. Once again, they're more open to learning, but there's folks who follow us. There's trouble that comes behind them. They've run Paul off down to Berea. Now Paul has been run off again. And here's where he lands. If you come all the way down to Achaia, right here on the Aegean Sea, he is in beautiful Athens. That is considered kind of part of Greece. And so it's one of those beautiful areas that's sitting right on the seaside, mountainous region where you can overlook the ocean. And so just a, a greatly incredible region. Uh, the Athenians were known for a couple things. Art was one of them. Architecture was another. Philosophy was the third. So, so art, architecture, they, they felt like they could capture God in their art, which would include statues, but also in their architecture. Paul's going to address that in just a little bit in his message. And so Paul is there, and he's in this beautiful place, and this gives you just a snapshot. There's no way. I wish I could show you slide after slide of how beautiful this area is, especially the Acropolis. The Acropolis, I'll show you a distant shot of in just a minute. It sets up on top of the hill. It's a former fortress, but in that fortress were the temples to all these pagan gods and all of these statues, which were pagan gods. So, so this is what Paul would have been seeing. So if you ever get a chance to go and you get to go to the Acropolis, and you start to walk around and see this, this is what the Apostle Paul literally laid his eyes on. So that's how real this is. This is where he walked. And so the Apostle Paul walks through, and he sees all of these pagan gods. And notice what it says. It says he was distressed. That's not really the meaning of the word. It's paroxino. And paroxino in Greek literally means he was provoked to anger. He was actually mad. So let me ask you another question, because I asked you this question to start with. Could you explain, in a nutshell, what it is that you foundationally believe? What it is that defines you as a Christ follower? But here's another question I want you to be able to answer. Does it distress you? Does it cause you anguish how our nation has now moved towards so many other forms of religion and how open we are to the practice of all those other forms. And if you can shake your head no, because my world is good, then you're not troubled by the right things. Because it's funny how we'll get upset about our team losing, but we're not upset about our team losing. Did y'all hear what I said? It's funny how we'll get upset about our team losing, but we're not upset about the fact that Christianity is taking a beating in this culture. 
And we're supposed to be a nation founded on Christian and biblical principle. Notice what it says about Paul. He was angry. I mean, he saw this stuff, and it, please hear me, y'all. This is beautiful. I'm not saying the pagan worship's beautiful, but the architecture, the, the place historically is gorgeous. And Paul is seeing all that, but yet he was angry in his spirit because he knew the one true God was not being worshipped here, and so it troubled him. You should be bothered when in your workplace, when in your school, if Jesus is not the one that's being magnified. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue. Remember, this was his strategy. I told you last week, if you don't have a strategy, you will not be successful spiritually. You want to overcome sin, you must have a strategy. You want to be able to explain to your children how to come to know Christ, you have to have a strategy. You want to sway that coworker, you've got to have a strategy. Paul's strategy was this, every place I show up, I'm going to look for common ground. So he would go and look for the Jews first because they had the Old Testament in common. He reasoned with the Jews and with those who worship God, so that's Greek people who haven't converted to Judaism but yet worship Yahweh as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So here's the non-Jew. So he's reasoning with everybody, and then look who shows up in verse 18. You may not know these folks. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? We're going to explain exactly what they said in just a minute. But you need to know this group of people. Jeff, give me this next slide because it gives us a, a, a kind of a, an introduction to these two groups. Uh, the Epicureans were what we call materialists. They believe that the human is nothing more than a random series of atoms. And so these atoms are just randomly there. There was no outside source that put them together, so no God. There's no evolutionary process. That's not what they taught. They just teach that these random atoms come together. Now, that's pretty random. And so these atoms are all together randomly, and then when you die, these random atoms just disperse, and they don't have any meaning. And so since there's no meaning before the random atoms come together, and there's no meaning after the random atoms depart, then the only thing that matters is right here, right now. So pleasure was the goal. What culture does that sound like? Ours. Pleasure, whatever makes me happy. It, it is the goal of convenience and happiness. Well, that, that's the Epicureans. And so the, the goal of pleasure. Well, the Stoics weren't exactly like that. They were a little more connected to nature. They would have been your mother nature kind of people. The Stoics were pantheists. That means they worshiped nature. They didn't think there was a God who made it. They thought God was in it. So like when they looked at the mountain, that's a God. They looked at the grass, that's a God. They look at a tree, oh, that's God. That's the first tree huggers in case y'all missed that. And so here we are. And so this is the two groups. The goal for both was the same, pleasure. For the Stoics, the only way to be pleasured was to be in unity and harmony with nature. Well, man was a part of nature as well. We're all connected. We're all, so for you to be in pleasure, you've got to be in unity with mankind because we're all of the same nature. So these are the two. And notice what they said about our, our good friend Paul. He is an ignorant show-off. That's not really what they said. It's spermaloyos, spermaloyos. And here's what spermaloyos means. It's a seed picker. Anybody ever raise chickens? Anybody ever have chickens? Yeah. Okay, so you throw your seed out. Chicken comes up, start to eat. When he starts to peck, what do they do? That's what they just did to Paul. You seed picker. They just said, literally, you're a babbler. You know, you're not talking philosophy, dude. You're a babbler. You're just a seed picker. You're like the chicken. You're just, you're just pecking at everything. Well, Paul's about to get very specific in his pecking. And so notice it gets a little bit worse for him. Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Y'all get this. 
When Paul was there, when Paul was there, they had never heard of Jesus. So, so when we talk about an area where evangelism was needed, the sharing of the gospel, this was it. They had never heard of Jesus, not even the Jews. So, so they're so far away from Jerusalem, they don't know that God in the flesh has come to earth, that he has died for man's sin, he's been resurrected to provide evidence of the judgment that's to come and to show that everlasting life is real. And they've never heard any of it. Well, here's the problem. In a Roman-controlled empire, you could not introduce new religions. You could practice any of the old religions you wanted, but you could not introduce a new religion because they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of his resurrection. What did they say? Dude, you're teaching something that's illegal. So what did they do? They go and snatch him up. The English kind of misses it here. Notice what it says. They took him and brought him. Um, Man, I've been taken and brought several times, but I wasn't under arrest. The word here is epilambanome. In Greek, that means he was arrested. This is official. When he gives this sermon, he's giving it as a defense for his arrest case. And so he is giving it under great pressure. He's not just talking, he's defending himself. So they brought him to the Areopagus, and, and I've given you, Jeff, go to the next one, because I'm going to give you just a picture. I may come back to the one previous. If you look, the Areopagus in the lower left is where you see the placard. The Areopagus is this hill. It's a raised area. Uh, it is, it's called three different things, and it's the same place. It's the Areopagus. Because Ares, if you'll see, the first figure that I have here, he is the Greek god of war, and lots of war took place on this little raised hillside. What you see above it is where all those statutes were. So if you look at the little placard and you're looking up the mountain, that was the fortress, that was the Acropolis. That's where the temples of the pagan gods were located. And, and so this is where Paul would have been standing. So he would have been seeing the Acropolis and all of its beauty, and when it was still a major fortress and all those pagan temples, and he is standing on this war mountain. It's also called Mars Hill, which is how the sermon is typically referred to, the sermon at Mars Hill. Because if you look at the figure at the far right, Mars was the Greek god of war. And this was a war hill. This is where they did a lot of fighting, and so it was kind of war hill. So it's got all kinds of names, Areopagus, it's Ares Hill, it's Mars Hill. Didn't really matter to Paul a whole lot. He is under arrest as he stands there, so this is what he's going to do. May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. The word teaching there is didahi, it's the word doctrine. So, so please hear me. They understood that what he's talking about is a doctrine. You're like, well, Justin, what exactly is doctrine? Doctrine is a foundational belief that defines who you are. So, so that's a doctrine for us. Jesus Christ being the only way to God the Father, that's a doctrine. That's a salvific doctrine, meaning it's a doctrine on which salvation hinges, meaning I'm not open to other paths to salvation other than Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not open to any other path other than himself. And, and so that is one of our doctrines. So they want to hear his foundational doctrines. Hey, don't tell us the fluff stuff. Tell us the good stuff. We, we want to hear what it is that defines your beliefs. Because what you say sounds strange to us. We want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. In case y'all don't know, look at verse 21. That is a doctor's way of being snippy. He's very educated, and so he doesn't call them ignorant. He just says, y'all are lazy. You sit around talking too much. That, that's virtually what Luke just said. All the Athenians wanted to do was to sit around and debate something new instead of working. And Luke would have found great interest in their work. And so, again, Luke is kind of being snippy. Paul would have just said, hey, you're lazy. But, but Luke is very diplomatic here. Verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. So, so here he is, right down here, bottom picture. Here he is standing in the middle. If you look up on the top picture, so he's up there in the middle somewhere. He's under arrest. 
He's got to give his trial speech. People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Notice what Paul does here. So, so he, he's under arrest. He's been falsely accused. He's under arrest once again. But instead of attacking them verbally, what does he do? He actually points out the common. He points out something good. You're arresting me because of religion, but here's the thing. I see that you're very religious as well. And so he starts his debate. He starts his defense with some common ground as opposed to taking a scroll of Scripture and banging somebody on the head with it. That's not how he started. And so, again, what you've got Paul doing is he's teaching us something about how we should defend what we believe. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship... I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Jeff, if you would, let us see that one. If you've you've never seen this on the left-hand side, this is what Paul saw. This is what he is referring to. This is actually the altar to the unknown God. It it is still in existence. And so, so keep in mind, what Paul saw is real. Is still in existence. And so when he saw this, he saw that it was ascribed to the agnostos. Y'all ever heard the term agnostic? Agnostic in English? Agnostos is the Greek word where we get that from. All it means is not knowable. See, an agnostic doesn't deny that God exists. An agnostic would say it doesn't matter. Because since God is not knowable, then why would I be concerned about a God's existence? If I can't know him, then it has no bearing on my existence. Then I'm going to live how I want to live because since I can't know God, God really doesn't matter. Now, an atheist doesn't believe in any deity. So an atheist would say, no, God does not exist. An agnostic says, uh, he may, he may not, she may, she may not, because it doesn't matter to an agnostic because they can't know that entity or that deity So they just don't care. And so this is what Paul said. You are so superstitious, you built an altar to a God you do not know just to make sure you got them all. So you built all the other statues trying to get them, and then you built one. So just in case we left one out, we don't want to offend any of the gods, so let's make one to the unknown God. And here's what Paul says. What you're worshiping in ignorance, and he's not using it in such a way to call them ignorant. He's talking about their lack of knowledge. He said, what you're worshiping in your lack of knowledge, let me educate you. Well, remember, what were they open to? They're open to education. And so he's saying, I just, I want to tell you who this is. And they would have been interested because a lot of those folks weren't the ones who built it. They're looking at it going, oh, dude, you can tell us who the unknown God is. And Paul's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And and guess what? He's going to be a little different than all of the rest of of the gods that you think you know. Look at verse 24. He starts with the argument from creation. So so this is like Genesis 1, right? Here here it is. Paul's going to give us the Bible in a nutshell. The God who made the world and everything in it. Here's the argument from creation. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Remember what Lord means? It's the same word in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Kyrios, owner, ruler, master. Here's what Paul just said. You don't know this God. You built something to an unknown God, and yet he is the one who owns and rules everything. How could you have skipped him? I mean, this would have really, really caught their attention. Plus, the Greeks would have related well to this. They didn't want a God who was dependent upon man. If a God was dependent upon man, then man is equal to that God. They wanted a God who was greater, who was bigger. And this is what Paul just said. Everything that you see, this master made it all. This ruler made it all. This owner made it all. And so this would have really gotten their attention. So, so now they're, they're listening to him. 
He does not live in shrines made by hands. What was at the Acropolis? Temple after temple after temple where all these pagan gods and their, their statues were located. And here's what he just said. This God, he won't live in one of those. He's bigger than those. You can't contain him in one of these. And so he's really separating the God of the universe from all these pagan false gods. Neither is he served by human hands. Meaning this, you've got this altar to the unknown God, there's nothing you can offer him that's going to give him or fulfill his need. You can't meet his need. How do you give God something? I mean, think about that. What is it you can give to God that God does not have? What is it that you can give to God that he can't make? I mean, he made the first man. Don't you think he can make some more if he chooses? So there's nothing you can give to God that God actually needs. And so, again, he's pointing this out. From one man, he has made every nationality. All right, so here we go. Not only the creation story, but we're talking about how man came into existence. Paul says, from one man, Adam, all came to exist. Now, see, this would have spoken to our Stoics. Remember, they're all about nature. God is nature, and we're all unified through nature. And so Paul's speaking to the Stoics. He says, that's exactly right. We're all connected because we're made out of the same stuff. And it all came from one dude. And so, man, now they're really, really listening. But notice what he does with this. He changes gears on them just a little bit. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. But get this, here, here's where he starts teaching the doctrine of sovereignty. And he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. All right, so you Stoics are right. It all comes from one man. We are all unified and related as humanity, but it is God who is over all of you. And so he's talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, again, he's not attacking them, saying, oh, you idiots, you're worshiping trees. I cannot believe you're out there hugging the grass. You think the grass is some kind of God. You hold up the dirt, and you worship the dirt. You look at the stars, and you worship the stars. He, he's not attacking their beliefs, but he's refuting their beliefs by adding knowledge to their belief structure. So, so he's still keeping them listening. Yes, we are unified. We come from one man, yet it is this God, this creator God, that controls all of us. It's not nature that's the God. It's the God who made nature that's God. And so Paul is absolutely brilliant in this message. He did this. Notice this. So here's the knowability. Remember what, what, the, what the altar said? Agnostos, he's the unknowable God. Notice what he says. No, he made all of humanity and put you in the places you are, so verse 27 would be true, so that they might seek God. And perhaps, now, now listen, perhaps they might reach out and find him, though, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So, so here's the deal. God not, only, God not only made all of humanity from one man, he did it for one purpose so you could actually know him. So you've built an altar to an unknown God, but here's where you're mistaken. You can actually know this God. In fact, he made you so you can know him, so you can seek him. And so if you're sitting in here this morning and you don't feel like you're close to God, you feel like you're far from God, you don't know Jesus personally, please hear me. He made you so you could know him. He brought you here so you could know him. You don't have to leave here not knowing the real God of the universe. This is exactly what he's teaching. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Uh, this phrase, we shouldn't think, uh, ophilo literally means, it's just a reference to 
being obligated to something. And here's what he says. We are obligated to this God not to think we can make an image that suffices for him. So remember what he just walked down from? He was at the Acropolis. He sees all these pagan gods. Now we've got this altar to an unknown God. He said, how dare we think we can make anything that looks like him? How how dare we? We create idols and worship those idols in place of the one real God. Now the Stoics, they would have really been listening because the Stoics are thinking, oh, that's exactly right because God is nature. Now Paul is refuting that saying God is over nature, but you can't contain God in a tree either. You can't contain God in the wolf. You can't contain God in the elephant. You can't contain him in the ocean. God is bigger than all of that. And so he is refuting this idea that we should worship anything but the person of God. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Listen to what Paul just said. Okay, so here's what God has done. God has overlooked all that you did not know at this point. So prior to this point, God has overlooked these things. And here's what the Bible said back in the Old Testament as well. God overlooked their transgressions. God overlooked their sin. I'm not going to judge you for these things you did not know. And so here's what he, he comes back to this. Okay, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. So, so please here, I want you to understand this. Everybody look up here real quick. Because you're being told truth this morning, you cannot leave here today with that protection. Notice what Paul said. Because now you know that there is a creator God, and he's going to introduce you to the person of that God Now when judgment happens, you can't say, well, I did not know. And this is exactly what Paul just said to them. Prior to me telling you just about five seconds ago, you could have said, hey, I did not know. Remember what they said? He's teaching a foreign deity. We've never heard of Jesus in the resurrection. Now Paul says, hey, now you've been told. So notice what he just did. I just linked Jesus, the name of Jesus, to this creator God. So so they are one and the same. So he just gave a name to the unknown God. And he says this, you can know him. This unknown God has designed it that you could know him. He requires everyone to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Y'all listen real carefully. If you're a circular, underliner, highlighter in your scripture, that last verse I just read, he has given evidence to the judgment through the resurrection. When we think about resurrection, you know what I think of resurrection? I think of evidence to life everlasting. That's what I think of. But here's what Paul just said, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The resurrection is proof that there's going to be a judgment. He gave the resurrection to remind us that life is going to continue for every person, but you will not enter into that life until judgment takes place. And so please hear me. The resurrection is proof of life eternal, but it is also proof that there is a final judgment that is coming. And so Paul is trying to get these people he's reasoning with to understand this information I'm giving you, you can't just walk away from it and leaving it. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you about this again. So Paul left their presence. Now church, get this, don't forget, he was under arrest, right? And yet he explained what he believed so carefully and craftily that literally he just walks away. He just walks off. Like like there's no, hey, you come back here. No, it is, hey, we want to learn more about this, and they just kind of separate like his friends. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, so church, here's the point I want you to understand. It is great. It is great to possess knowledge. Knowledge is an awesome thing. But if you can't take that knowledge that you have, because every one of you in here who's a Christ follower, you've got knowledge of what the Scriptures say. Some of you have been in church longer than I have, and I've been in it for a long time. 
But if you can't take that knowledge and explain it in such a way that people understand it, then that knowledge is absolutely useful. And so we've got to figure out a way to tie those things. And I shared with you, my grandmother was one of the very best at this. I've given you some of, some of my favorite stories that she used to tell. One of her favorites was Daniel in the lion's den. My grandmother, y'all, y'all listen, northeast Mississippi, that's Tornado Alley. Some of you can relate to that and understand that. We had lots of storms, lots of tornadoes, and I can remember as a kid, man, we were sitting in a house, and we didn't have time to make it to a shelter, and I mean, we're getting pelted with hail that's about the size of softballs. In fact, one of our neighbors had reached out to close a door, and a piece hit him and broke his arm in two places. I mean, it was massively large. Uh, A tornado did come through, and it was only about 150 yards from my grandmother's house where we were, and I remember my grandmother as calm as she could be, and my grandmother hated storms, hated them. But yet with all the grandkids there, I remember my grandmother as calm as she could be as we were kind of huddled up near a mattress so we could climb under it if we needed to, talking about Daniel in the lion's den. She said, are you afraid? And I remember shaking my head, yeah. I'm like eight years old thinking, yeah, I don't like this. When it sounds like there's about 8,000 people on top of the roof beating holes in it, no, I don't like it at all. Everything in the house is howling, including me, the dog, the cat, and me. We're all howling. And my grandmother's just as calm as she could be. And she started talking about Daniel and the lions. And she said, do you think Daniel was scared when they first put him down there with the lions? Yeah. I mean, they're lions. But she said, how did that story end? I said, well, God closed the lions' mouths. You know how I knew the story? Because she'd already told me. Over and over and over again. But in that moment, when she got me talking about Daniel and the lions' den, you know what happened to my fear about the storm? gone. I'm not telling you the fear wasn't real and and there was a good cause for it. I don't know about you. I don't like tornadoes to this day. But in that moment, as she got to teaching me about God never leaving us, even when it's nasty and dangerous, it just calmed me down in my spirit. It just helped me to relax. There's another time I'm fishing and I catch about a four and a half, five pound largemouth bass. Those of you fishermen, yes, it was a nice one. It had a big old mouth about that big. I'm trying to get my, my snapper popper out of it. I couldn't get it loose. The hook was down in there. And, and I'm trying to get it out, and I'm kind of fussing a little bit. Trying to get and my grandmother comes up. She says, hey, you think your worm, that worm you've got, in comparison to the size of that fish? She says, you know, you know is, that, is that probably about the size of Jonah compared to the fish that swallowed him? And you know what's so funny? All my frustration, all my concerns about getting my snapper popper back out of my largemouth bass kind of went away because I got focused on the real-life story of, of Jonah and a fish. And all she was doing, church, was teaching me that when in my world I think something is such a crisis, there's a story that's so much bigger than my world. And how many times do we get so focused on our little crisis that we forget there's an eternal story that's been going on since the start. And then her greatest story, the one she loved to tell the most, was about the grave clothes that were empty in the tomb. She didn't just talk about the empty tomb. She said, can you imagine wrapping him? I mean, she said, you know, they used to prepare those bodies so carefully. Can you imagine how how carefully he was prepared? And, And to walk in there and not only just find an empty tomb, but the grave clothes were just empty, and they're still lying right there as though he just crawled right out of them. And my grandmother used that story constantly to remind me that there is something greater than this. She would link it to like a cocoon. You know, we're, we're in a cocoon right now. And this life is nothing but a struggle. 
It is just a struggle. But there's going to come a point where we bust out of our cocoon and it is beautiful, just like Jesus coming out of the tomb. And so, so here's a lady who, again, may have had an eighth grade education, never went to seminary, but buddy, she understood the meaning of Scripture as deeply as anybody I've ever taught. Phenomenal. Instrumental in who I became as a Christ follower. And so church, again, here's why I tell you this. My grandmother didn't educate herself in Scripture just so she would know. My grandmother educated herself in Scripture so she could tell. There's a difference in just knowing and keeping it to yourself. My grandmother educated so she could communicate. That's my challenge to you this morning. I'm going to challenge you to educate but not for the purpose of just knowing. Knowledge is super. But if you're not willing to share that knowledge, then it just becomes wasted. It's just like gold that sits in a vault that never gets used. It's just useless. And so this morning, I'm going to challenge you to educate, to communicate, but here's some things I want you to consider. Number one, I want you to really, truly, I want you to ask the Lord to impress upon you a concern, His concern, about the spiritual health of our nation. We, we don't do this enough, and this is partly my fault because we, we're very focused on the text and we try to work through the text. But church, we as a church need to be very concerned about the health of the United States. And I don't mean the economic health. That's what Usually when you say that we need to be praying about the health of the United States, we're talking about tax deduction. We're talking about economy and deficit. No, I'm, I'm talking about the spiritual health of our nation. And we need to make focused prayer a great effort as a church about our nation and where it's going and what is becoming of it. And so if you want to educate in order to communicate, I want you to ask God to kind of change your spirit. Because here's what's going to happen. If you become concerned about the fact that people really are going to die and spend an eternity away from God because our culture has so uneducated us about the Bible, this is the most biblically illiterate society this nation has ever known. We know less about Scripture now than we have ever known as a nation. And you know who's responsible? Hey, do me a favor. Everybody in here, raise your hand. That's who's responsible right there. Us. Because we're not troubled. We're not troubled as much as we should be about the changes that are taking place. And here's why. Because you know what? My life's good. It truly is. My life's good. My life's good. I've got a nice house. My cars all start. There's gas in them. I eat three, four, five meals a day. Six, seven on good days. I like food. My life's good. So it'd be real easy for me, who is surrounded by Christ followers, not to be real bothered by what's going on in the world. Shame on us. Shame on us. We need to educate so we can communicate truth. Number two, have a communication strategy. And here's all I mean by that. When you have a communication strategy, familiarize yourself with the other people you may be talking to. All right, so, so you got to base it on, on where it's going. Like when I was introducing Scripture to my kids, and they are two and three years old, you know what? Here's what they knew, only what we had told them. So I didn't have to familiarize myself a whole lot with what they believed or what they had been introduced to because we were doing all the introducing at that point. And what did we do every night? Our communication strategy every night with our kids growing up was we were going to go through Bible stories. 
Uh, Caleb and Lizzie were so close in age that literally we would do it together with them, and we had used the books so often they could give you the answers before I turned the page, literally. You know, you're supposed to turn the page, and there's the character you're talking about, and they would tell you. And sometimes they would be close but not exactly right, like Joseph was sometimes Jofish. No kidding, that was the, that's Jofish. Yeah. So who is it? Jofish. Oh, yes, Jofish. And I would have to be careful because I would say that preaching sometimes. Y'all know Jofish? No, I mean Joseph. And so, again, familiarize yourself. But here's the deal. There's lots of, here's what I'm talking about. There's lots of Christian, and I'm, I'm using quotations here. There's lots of Christian sects out there, S-E-C-T-S, so you're not confused, that are out there. And, and, and they don't really believe in the same Bible we believe in. But it might benefit you to at least be aware of some of their foundational principles so if you come in contact with such. That's happened to one of our deacons. He called me, hey, dude, I'm kind of reasoning with this dude. And I said, hey, man, here's what I want you to do. Get this book. Uh, There's a couple of resources out there. One's called Reasoning from the Scriptures with a Mormon, Reasoning from the Scriptures with a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, The reason there's books written on that is because y'all, in case y'all don't know, we do disagree on some very key points. And, and, And so we need to educate so we can communicate, so we familiarize ourselves. However, even though there are differences, when we start to dialogue with people who may be disagreeing with us or who may really be struggling with belief, don't start with the negative. Don't start with the negative. Notice what Paul said. Hey, you know what? Here's what's cool. All of us are religious here. He didn't say, you bunch of pagans, you're all going to go to hell because you got statues that you're worshiping. That's what he could have done because that's what the reality was, but that's not what he started with. He started with, hey, it's really cool that all of us are religious. And dude, I even noticed this. You've got this altar that you worship and you offer things to an unknown God. Man, what you're worshiping in ignorance, let me clarify for you who that actually is. And he'd already been introduced and tied to the name of Jesus. And so he leads into this whole dialogue that you just read called the Sermon at Mars Hill. You don't necessarily have to preach, but you do need to know. You do need to educate yourself. Look for common ground. That is the greatest way to dialogue with somebody. If you emphasize differences, you will create walls. If you emphasize differences, you will create walls. Whereas if you try to find some common ground, then at least you have some dialogue. And it may be, hey, you know what? Here's what I hear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I understand you and your practice of the Muslim faith. You guys actually believe in Jesus, right? In case y'all don't know, they do. The Muslims do believe in Jesus, not as a deity, as we do, but as a prophet. But at least it's some common ground. And so there's some dialogue that can take place. Remember, the dialogue doesn't all have to happen in 30 seconds. It could be a dialogue that you have over a period of years with somebody. We're still in dialogue with our kids. Our kids are, are they're great, and they're solid Christians, and they're brilliant in their knowledge, but we're still in dialogue about theological things. And so, again, these are things that we need to work on over a period of time. And then number six, here's where we have to close because we've got to draw a line. Never give up ground, however, on who the real God actually is. Y'all listen, I'm tolerant from the standpoint I will listen to you. But I voice to people right up front, you will not change where I stand. You will not change my beliefs. And, and so... So there is a line in the sand, so to speak, where I say, shh, don't cross that line. Because if you start denying that Jesus is God, we've got a problem. If you start wanting me to acknowledge there are other ways to God the Father or to paradise, 
outside of Jesus, we've got a problem. Because there are certain salvific truths we won't bend on. You know, we can debate and talk about forms of baptism, and I can bring out language and all that, and we can really debate on, you know, reformed and free will. We, we can kind of debate that kind of stuff, but there are certain things that we will not debate on. That there is any true God outside of Christ, we will not debate that one at all. That's a line in the sand, and we won't give ground. You can call me intolerant, you can call me a bigot, you can call me a hater, you can call me anything you want, but Jesus is it. And that's where we as a church must land. Is Jesus is it. But we need all the knowledge about the other stuff so we can explain it to people who don't know. And, and so here's what I'm afraid of, is that every Sunday I stand up and I'm going to release you. <sighs> Ephesians 4.12, train them. It says, make you more adequate to go do ministry. So, so I get you here on a Sunday and I'm trying to train you up and I'm going to release you, but I don't want to release you and you not be ready. Because I want you to go out there and get after it. It's not just for me to go get after it, it's for us, you understand, to go get after it. So, so I've got two challenges today, two, two, two groups of people I want to speak to. I want to start with this one first. If you are dead set on your knowledge and belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're absolutely certain you're a Christ follower, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment this morning to be willing to be further educated to enhance your communication of Scripture. If you are, if you're willing this morning as a Christ follower to make a commitment to God in this room, I am willing to be more educated on the foundational beliefs of what defines who I am so I can communicate more regularly. When our time of response comes, that's all I'm going to ask you to do. Make that commitment to God. Then here's what I want you to do next. I want you to shoot me an email tomorrow. Yeah, I expect to get a bunch. Look at you. Justin, J-U-S-T-O-N, at fbc-forsyth.org. And I'm going to send you two resources. I'm going to tell you the names of them. I can't send them. It, the Internet's really good, but there's certain things I can't do. I'm going to send you the title to two resources that I want you to read. One is by David Platt. So, so if you don't want to email, and you can write really quick because I'm not going to spend much time here. One is by David Platt. It's called Follow Me. And the other one's by Francis Chan, and it's called Multiply. These two men were challenged by the same publisher. I want you to write a book that would cover the basics of the Christian faith for a new believer to be able to sink their teeth into and therefore be able to share with somebody else what it is they actually believe. See, here's my concern. I'm concerned there's mature believers that can't do that. And I'm supposed to be making you more adequate. That's exactly what Ephesians 4.12 says. When it says train, the word that's, that's there for train Train the church. It's literally the word in Greek that means make you more adequate. I'm concerned that I'm sending out mature believers that aren't adequate enough to tell people about what they believe. And so that's going to fall on my shoulders. I'm going to be judged for that, so I'm fixing that today. Either email me or take this down. Follow me, David Platt, multiply, Francis Chan. It will give you the tenets of our faith so that you could take any new believer and say, hey man, if you want to, want to know, if you want to know what it really means to be a Christ follower, Man, here, here's a great resource for you. It is worth you purchasing. Trust me, it is worth you having these two books in your home. It will help you, not only with new believers, but it will help you to communicate what it is you actually think to be true. There, there's a couple of others, and so if you want something outside those two, go ahead and email me anyway, and I'll give you a list of a couple of other books. But here, here's the other group I want to address. If you cannot, with absolute certainty, look me in the eyes and say, Justin, I know for a fact 
I am a Christ follower. I know for a fact that, that I believe all the stuff that Paul just said, because Paul literally just linked Jesus with the creation story, the creation of Adam, the resurrection. You, you do understand he just told the whole scripture in a sermon about this long. And I'm not sure I really have nailed this down. I don't know that I feel close to God. I feel far from God. I, I'm just not sure where I am in this. But you know what? I am open, I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing more. I'm open to somebody going, hey, here's, here's what you need to think about. Well, if that is you today, here's what I want you to do. Don't email me. When we start to pray, I want you to stand up. And I want you to walk straight to those doors right over there. If that is you today, don't email me. I want you to stand up. And I want you to walk straight over there to where it says exit. And there's going to be a member are two members of our prayer response team. All they want to do is this. They want, don't want to embarrass you, not going to commit to anything, sign anything, unless the Lord leads you to. They're just going to sit you down with a scriptural ref, reference that we have, and they're going to walk you through that, just page by page. It's just a few pages, explaining to you what it really means to be close to God. Notice what Paul said in this message. He is never far from us. If you want to be close to God, closer than you've ever been before, I want you to get up today. I want you to walk right over there. Because we can explain to you biblically how that can be a reality in your life. I can't make it happen in five seconds. You need to give us some time. Just as Paul needed time, give us some time to explain to you how that can be a reality for you. So, so when we're about to stand, again, two things. You're far from God. You want to be closer to God than ever. I want you to walk right over there. Or, I know I'm there. I want to be able to explain better. I want you to make a commitment. Just make a commitment. Lord, I commit today. I'm going to educate so I can communicate better.